Well, the Bible's an old book. The, the events recorded here in 2 Samuel 6 happened roughly 3,000 years ago. And this story might feel that old to you. 2 Samuel 6 might feel to you like another world away. It might feel strange. It might seem irrelevant. I mean, all this excitement over the ark, we don't do that today. This gold box, roughly four foot by two foot by two foot, wasn't even that big. Uzzah's killed by God for simply touching this ark rather than letting it fall to the ground. That seems odd to our, to our thinking, I'm sure. The mighty King David, who loves the Lord and is a man after God's own heart, he's afraid of this ark and afraid of the God of it. And he doesn't know what to do with it. Then there's a change of mind that happens. There's another try to bring the ark to its resting spot. And David dances before it. He dances with all his might, something I've never done or can relate to. He sheds some of his clothes. His wife gets mad. Then we're told that she can't bear any children. And the chapter ends. And so you might ask, so what? Who cares? Why bother with these strange events? Well, we can say many things to that. One of which is that this is not just an old book, but it is a living book. And I hope you'll hang on with me today as we seek to be helped by this passage. I think we can be helped by this passage and by these verses that are now 3,000 years away from us and coming to us from a different era and even a different covenant of redemptive history than the one that we're in. But I think these verses powerfully show us what we were made for, that it's not easy to get what we were made for, but it can happen. And for many of us, it already has. Now, I'm sure that's probably more cryptic, cryptic than the passage itself. So let's just get after it. Let me suggest four turns in the story of 2 Samuel 6, four lessons for us. The first is that God's presence must be pursued. His presence must be pursued. That's what David is doing. That's primarily what the ark is all about. It's about God's presence. We'll see that there's more to the ark than just God's presence, but, but we'll start with that. It's primarily about the presence of God in the midst of his people, and David is in hot pursuit of it. David is a man after God's own heart. He later wrote Psalm 16 and said, to God, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The invisible God, in his kindness, let his people know about his presence with them at times in visible ways. Though he's invisible, though he is everywhere, he revealed his special presence to his people at times in these visible ways. Remember how God showed up to Moses. And what Moses saw was a burning bush. And God spoke. As he led his people through the wilderness, there was a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was showing something of the presence of God in their midst. And this ark is like that as well. The ark of God, or as it says in verse two of our passage, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies of angels in heaven who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This ark, it meant more than just the presence of God. It was multi-layered in its significance it signified God's covenant with his people. It's sometimes called the Ark of the Covenant. It recalls God's provision and his protection of his people in the wilderness. That's why inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was manna and Aaron's staff. It represented God's rule over his people. And that's why the Ten Commandments were inside as well. It was sort of viewed as God's footstool with his throne in heaven touching down to earth in his rule over these people. So that's why I say it is primarily about God's presence among his people. 
And at times, Moses refers to the ark itself as God. He can sometimes think it as God personified right in his midst there. It was from the ark that God would speak to Moses in that tent of meeting, as it was called. But the ark is also about God's mediated presence among his people. Not just his presence, because they're sinners and he's holy. It's about his mediated presence in the midst of sinners. On the top of the ark, there was the mercy seat. And it was there that atonement was made. Sacrifices were done. Blood was spilled. We'll talk more about atonement later. But the ark also communicated something about God's holiness. Because very strict rules were given for handling the ark. And and sacrifices notwithstanding, there were so many limitations on what the ark could and couldn't do. They were not to touch it. They were not to look into it. They had to cover it whenever moving it. It was to be carried with wooden poles run through the rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests and them alone. And if any of these rules were broken, God warned, you'll die. Don't do these or you'll die. Do it as I say or you'll die. And in the wilderness especially, as his people traveled On their way to the promised land, the ark was really at the center of everything. It was in the middle of the tribes when they traveled. And then when they set up camp, a few of the tribes would go to the east. A few of them would go to the west. A few would go to the south. A few would go to the north. But in the middle was the tabernacle. And in the middle of the tabernacle was the holy of holies. And there in the holy of holies was the ark. It's as if all eyes are on God in the midst of his people shown in this ark, the center of it all. So 2 Samuel 6 assumes all of this previous information and revelation about the ark and its significance. And David knows much of it, maybe all of it. And so like like a moth to the burning light, David finds the presence of God irresistible. As Nathan showed us so well last Sunday from the previous chapter, 2 Samuel 5, conditions were then perfect to give attention to the corporate worship of God. We saw last week, finally God's man is fully on the throne, ruling in righteousness and justice and grace and mercy. For the first time, there is now a unified Israel under God's man, his anointed king. The Philistines have been defeated and pushed back as of 2 Samuel 5, moving them out of Jerusalem. The city of David is what it will be called. It will now be the headquarters for God's rule and his worship in the middle of his people in the land he promised to Abraham. That's why David pursues the ark of God to bring it to Jerusalem where once again it would be in the midst of his people as a sign of his presence with them and as a place for sacrifice and atonement for them. God's presence must be pursued. That's the plan. That's the thing that he's trying to fix, that we broke. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they were cast out. They once walked with God in the cool of the day, but then they were removed, and angels blocked the entrance of the garden that day. There's a way forward, but there's no way back into that garden. But God does have a way forward. And here in this ark... In the midst of his people. That's part of his plan at this moment in time. David pursues the long neglected ark of God. Has that dawned on you? That at this point of 2 Samuel 6, the ark has not been talked about in a very, very long time. You see a clever but subtle little hint in 2 Samuel 6.2. There it says that, David and his 30,000 chosen men, they go to Baal Judah to retrieve the ark. Where's Baal Judah? Well, actually, I don't know. I didn't look on a map, but I do know this. I know that 
Baal Judah used to be called Kiriath-Jerim. And we last read of the ark in Kiriath-Jerim back in 1 Samuel 7. You might remember, if you were here with us as we studied that together a couple years ago, that 1 Samuel 5 all the way into 1 Samuel 7, you have a few different related overlapping ark stories, this same ark. So in 1 Samuel 5, God, uh, well, God allowed his people to be defeated by the Philistines because they were trusting in this ark in a wrong sort of way, maybe like a good luck charm as they went into battle. God allowed them to be defeated. He allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines. But because God would not be mocked by the Philistines, nor would his ark be mocked by those Philistines, everywhere they brought that ark, havoc happened, death and and disease. They, They moved it around Philistia until they finally decided to give it back to Israel in 1 Samuel 6. And these people who were given this ark back, they were happy at first until some of them looked in it and then they were killed. It was either 70 men or 50,000 in 70 men who were killed that day. It's a textual problem there. We're not sure which one it is, but whatever, it was a lot. And when those men back in 1 Samuel 6 saw the spectacle the mass execution, they said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? And as you turn the page into chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, it says there, the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. 20 years in the ark of God, the covenant symbol of his presence and provision and protection with his people. It's been in some guy's barn. 20 years with no day of atonement on the ark of the covenant. 20 years with no visible symbol of God's presence among his people. 20 years without much concern or almost any mention of the ark among God's people. It seems to be something like a relic of yesteryear, like a famous painting that got put in someone's garage and forgotten about. It's in a forgotten city, in fact. You see, 20 years goes by, and that place probably isn't known as Kiriath-Jerim anymore. It's now known as something else, like when Maple Street later turns into John F. Kennedy Boulevard. And you got to go, oh, yeah, like Marty McFly did. Oh, yeah, I think that's Maple Street. Who the heck is John F. Kennedy? Remember that part? It's kind of like that. (laughs) Stick to the notes, Ryan. Stick to the notes. So David knows where it is. He goes and he gets it. Notice 30,000 chosen men go with David. More men than would go out for a typical battle. 30,000. Verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, what a day this was. What a parade this must have been. What cause for praise, especially as it flows out of all the positive things that came in the previous chapter. God's promises at this point were all coming together and funneling into this king in this place at this time. God promised to Abraham he'd make him a great people. He'd make him a nation. He'd give him the land. He would drive out the enemies. There'd be a ruler from Judah. Kings shall come from you, God said to Abraham, and I will bless you and you'll have peace and I'll be with you. What a good thing it is to pursue the presence of God. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Until the music stopped. God's presence must be pursued. But secondly, God's presence must not be trifled with. 
it must not be trifled with. What, what else could we conclude from this story of Uzzah? God's presence cannot be trifled with. Let's read it again in verse 6. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of this error, and he died there beside the ark of God. It seemed like God's presence is a good thing to pursue, but this is risky, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is hard for us to hear. Let's admit it. It's it's harder for us to understand why this is here and why God works in this ways. I think many of us could sympathize with Uzzah. Many of us wouldn't have too much trouble if we were tasked with being his lawyer in this crime. It takes very little work to get him, give him something of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, surely he meant well, not harm. It was a practical matter. The ark was on a cart. The, the cart shifted because of an irregularity in the ground, perhaps the ark began to slide off the cart. Instinctually, Uzzah put out his hand and he kept the ark from falling to the ground and getting a dent, getting a ding, or just hitting the dirt. Yes, but remember, God said very clearly in Numbers 4, in Exodus 25, do not look upon it, do not touch it, lest you die. It was repeated many times. Move it like this, not like that, lest you die. It's good for you to live, not die. Do it my way. He warned his people. And you might still say, though, but why such a strict rule in the first place about touching the ark? What's the big deal about a little touch? Well, you should know that God teaches through symbols, and he's very zealous to protect those instructive symbols. So do not touch is not a picky rule instituted by an OCD God. Do not touch was there to, to tell them and remind them that God is holy and you are not. Not even the priests not even with the best of motives, not even under extreme circumstances. None are holy and none can touch it because God cannot be touched. He cannot be received. He cannot be embraced on our own, in our own strength and of our own doing. God can't dwell with us as we are by nature. So the presence of God is a problem for us before it can ever be a pleasure to us. We have to understand that. And God teaches it to us with letters written in death and blood. God goes to great lengths to show us this. And so it's not the only place in the Bible like this. You can think of Nadab and Abihu, two priests in Leviticus 10 who offered strange fire to the Lord. We're not even sure what they did. We just know it wasn't as God prescribed. They offered strange fire to the Lord and God took them out. They dropped dead right there. When Aaron, their father, said something critical of the Lord for doing this, Moses rebuked him and said, God told us, among those who are near me, I will be regarded as holy, and among all the people, I will be glorified. In Numbers 11, the people's complaining in the wilderness stirred up the anger of the Lord and resulted in the deaths of thousands. It's not limited to the Old Testament. You may have heard that there's a God of the Old Testament, a God of the New Testament, but they're the same God. So it's no surprise that in Acts chapter 5, in the early church, when Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, lie about how much money they gave to the church, God struck them dead. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about some in the Corinthian church who were taken out by God because they were doing something of playing loose with the Lord's Supper. God is jealous to protect his word and his symbols. And so he's eager to teach us about the real problem that sin is. And he's jealous for us to know that his holiness 
blazes with a white hot heat. As R.C. Sproul has said, when Uzzah touched the ark that day, he assumed that his hand was more pure than the dirt on the ground. And it wasn't. Dirt does exactly what God made it to do. Be dirt. Be dirty. But we don't do what God made us to do. We don't do his will. And so we cannot touch him. What's more, this adventure with the ark in 2 Samuel 6 was apparently doomed from the beginning. Because it's not just that Uzzah touched the ark that is problematic. That's the most problematic and it may have been something like the final straw. But God said in Numbers 4 and Numbers 7 that the ark was to be moved on the shoulders of the priests as they put the wooden poles through the gold rings on the side of the ark. They would pick it up and it would be placed on their shoulders. But we've been reading about it being carried along on a cart. Yeah, it's a new cart. It's got a special one for the occasion, but... But it's a cart, and God didn't say put it on a cart. He said the priests carry it on their shoulders with these wooden poles. Interestingly, it is back in 1 Samuel 6 that we see Philistines who first put the, the ark on a new cart when they sent it back to Israel. Of course, they don't know what God said. You can hardly blame them. They think they're doing the respectable thing by sending it back on a new cart. But David and his priests should have known. But mark it, God wants all of us to know that we break his rules constantly, that the payment for sin is death, that every breath we take as sinners is grace and mercy and patience. And his presence is a problem for sinners before it can ever be a pleasure to them. That's a hard lesson to learn and it was hard for David to learn it. So verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. I think this is carefully worded here. I think it's saying that David was angry because this happened. It doesn't explicitly say David was angry at the Lord. It seems a little more guarded than that. Maybe he's angry at the situation, and he's certainly perplexed about the situation. It was a game changer for David. He changed the name of that place where it happened. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez means breaking out against. They named the place breaking out against Uzzah because that's what God did. Now that phrase, breaking out against, is significant because in 2 Samuel 5, God had broken out against the Philistines. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 20, it literally reads like this. David came to the Lord of breaking outbreakings, and he defeated them, that is the Philistines. And then he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies. You go a little further, and really what it says is, therefore, the name of that place is called the Lord of Outbreakings. And now here, in our chapter, God is breaking out again. And David is learning the painful lesson that God, in his holy justice, can break out against Philistines, and he can break out against disobedient priests. David's learning that God can be against David's enemies and David and God can also be against David's friends because they both have the same sin problem. So God's presence must be pursued but it can't be trifled with and his presence must be we could say wrestled with. You've got to get your hands around this. You have to see that it's a dilemma before it is a delight. And so we can see David wrestling with this in verse 9. It says David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
And David wasn't willing at this point now to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Oh, it's so much like those in 1 Samuel 6 who exclaimed, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? David wonders aloud, How can a holy God come to me if he kills Uzzah's? How can I approach the worship of God? He didn't have an answer at that point, and so he stashed it away. But have you ever asked that question? How can I approach a holy God? How can God come to me? Who can stand before this God? Have you ever asked that? And really marveled at it as a problem? Have you maybe even yet seen that as a problem? That God is holy and you're not? And there needs a solution? If not, that's where you start. That's where you start with this Christianity thing, with this Jesus thing. You have to first see that there's a problem, and you even need to start to feel the weight of that problem. In Psalm 130, we so poetically and powerfully hear about the real problem and the only hope. Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, count our sins, O Lord, who could stand? No one. But it goes on to say, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's hope. And so thirdly, God's presence can be joyfully received. We find that out. And in case you think there's no hope for you, well, just look at this guy named Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Not only does he have a funny name, he's a Philistine. He's a Gentile. We're not sure why the ark went to him. We're not sure what kind of short straw he drew to get the ark at his house. But we're told, verse 11, that the ark remained there for three months. And it says, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. I bet you didn't see that coming the first time you read this straight through, if you read it with thoughtful eyes. I mean, Uzzah, the priest, barely touched it and he was killed. And now a Philistine has it in his house. How will it go? It will go blessed. It will go blessed for him. And we're not told why exactly. We're not told what kind of blessing this was. It doesn't matter. It must have been a remarkable kind of blessing or blessings. It must have been identifiable, undeniable, and inexplicable kind of blessing. You can imagine friends asking, you're knocking it out of the park. You're blessed in every way. What's your secret, man? And he says, nothing. I haven't even changed my diet. I'm not exercising. I didn't do any resolves or nothing like that. No resolutions. It's simply, there's an ark out there. The ark of God. It's amazing. God can choose to bless, apparently. God can forgive, apparently. God's presence can be received even with a Gentile. We're not told how much this Philistine understood or what kind of faith he had. We're just given a brief glimpse of hope that God's presence isn't implacably threatening, but it can be received and it can be a real blessing. And so David gets word of the blessings upon Obed-Edom. And then, of course, his faith is renewed and his interest is invigorated and he goes for, well, he goes for God. He goes again for God, for himself and for his people. Verse 12, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. Now he did it with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, notice they bore it, they carried it, just like number seven told them to do. 
When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. We only have the briefest of indications here. It raises some questions for us, no doubt. But just notice verse 13 is showing us something of how God's presence can be good and how it can be received joyfully. Sacrifice. Sacrifice through atonement. Now, such Old Testament sacrifices didn't really take away sins or make payment for sins, but they pointed ahead to the forgiveness that would come in the true and final sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God was teaching oftentimes through symbols and rituals. And sacrifices like this one painfully reminded the people of their sin and the severity of the problem. They reminded them of the, the payment of death for sins that's required of us all because something or some, some animal had to die. Sacrifices taught them something about a need for covering. It taught them about the possibility of substitution. Something else in my place. The innocent in place of the guilty. The transfer of sin from the guilty to the innocent that the guilty may go free. Now David knew that those sacrifices didn't remove sin. You just read the Psalms that he wrote and you see he knew this. He knew the Lord forgives not through sacrifice, but through confession and forgiveness. Like in Psalm 32, he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. David says, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, when David wrote that in Psalm 32, he didn't know everything that New Testament Christians know about the hope of forgiveness and how God forgives sinners and remains just. He didn't know all of it, but we do. We know that it was in the substitution and sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. That Jesus is the substance and the reality to which those foreshadowing sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing all along. As John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the priest who makes sacrifice by becoming the sacrifice himself. And he was a perfect sacrifice, we're told. He was a one-time sacrifice, we're told. First Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Presence is had through sacrifice and substitution the single sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for sins. And not only is he the sacrifice and the priest, he's also something like the ark of God in a body. The ark of God was God's mediating presence among his people. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to tabernacle among us. He came to show us the glory of the Father. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the new and living temple. He is God's white hot holy presence mediated to us through sacrifice in his own blood. So God's presence must be pursued. It can't be trifled with. And if you think it's no big deal for God to forgive, then you just look at the cross. Look at the cross. In the cross, we see justice and mercy kiss. And there we see God's presence revealed. God's presence can be received and received joyfully. What great cause for praise. 
It is true more for us than anyone in redemptive history before us that in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Deserves great praise. How's your praise? David, who knew less than many of us in this room, praised like this. He danced before the Lord with all his might Verse 14, David was wearing a linen ephod and David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. What exuberance. It's so properly excessive. God is great and he's greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable, Psalm 145 tells us. He deserves commensurate praise for his greatness. And his greatness is unmeasurable. You think you can outpraise him? You think you can give him more than he's due? And don't think, by the way, that this exuberant, joyful praise totally eclipsed the earlier emotion of fear. Fearing God. No, no, no. Biblically, those go together. Fear and joy go together. Forgiveness and holy awe go together. We saw it in Psalm 130 when I read, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Never trembled at your forgiveness? Psalm 211 tells us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Ever gazed upon the cross in scripture and thought of your own, your own rescue and rejoiced? With trembling, the fear of the Lord is a good thing, not just because it leads us out of ourselves and out of our sin. It's not just something that we endure to get to God's forgiveness, but it's the right response to that forgiveness. Sinclair Ferguson defines the fear of God is that as that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. So again, just look at the cross. If you don't think fear and joy can go together, let me quote from John Brown who wrote in the 1800s from Scotland, Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending him, into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love. None of these excellencies darken or eclipse the other, but every one of them rather gives a luster to the rest. They mingle their beams and shine with united eternal splendor. The just judge, the merciful father, the wise governor. Nowhere does justice appear so awful and mercy so amiable or wisdom so profound. And if that doesn't make you want to go read some more of John Brown, well then you might want to check to see if you're saved. All right, that's good stuff. And that's where all this David stuff is going. Towards Jesus, the, the prophet, the priest, the king, all in one. David's sa God's sacrifice and his presence to the full. David praised like he did and he didn't know the half of it. And we come on Sunday morning and yawn as the truth of God's plan goes over our lips in song. God help us. And yet, let's not leave 2 Samuel 6 too quickly. Let's not forget that even a thousand years before Jesus, this was a seismic shift in the plan of God. There's a real importance to what's going on in 2 Samuel 6, even though it's not the ultimate thing in the plan of God. The ark had now come to the city of David. It was in the midst of his people. This is a very good thing. And the whole nation knew it. Almost. We'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 17, though. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place 
inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, the multitude of Israel, men and women, cake, meat, cakes with raisins in them. Each one got one. And all the people departed from their house, blessed by this king, this priest king. Blessings abound in the presence of God. The presence of God is only possible through sacrifice. And through the true sacrifice, let us us laugh and marvel and tremble and be silent. Let us stand in awe and let us shout with joy. Let us sing like we are the redeemed of the Lord, that the Christ has come. God is in our midst right now, whether we feel it or not. It's ours to believe, ours to embrace, ours to pursue. Maybe right now you just pray for yourself, for your family, for this church in the worship of God, that he'd keep us, that he'd keep us from empty worship, that it would be in spirit and in truth that we sing, that we read, that we pray, and that we leave from here desiring obedience. Lastly, we see God's presence divides houses. It must be pursued, it can't be trifled with, it can be joyfully received, only through sacrifice, and God's presence divides houses. We skipped over verse 16, which warns us of dark clouds on the horizon back home. The ark of the Lord came to the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Without verse 16... This chapter seemingly could end at verse 19 and and end on such a happy note. But not all God's people are of God's people. Some will not rejoice with the king. Some will not see what is really going on. David returned home to bless his household, verse 20 says, But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She's in a hurry. And she said with dripping sarcasm, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. I suspect some in here, maybe women more than men, Wonder whether we should be more sympathetic with McCall here. I mean, after all, David was dancing with all his might. That sounds pretty weird. And wearing nothing but a linen ephod, which is like a a priest's apron. If he's just wearing that, that's a little too little for most of us, right? And it was for her. There were young ladies present. Here's the problem, though. That's all she could see. That's all the care she had. There was no thought of the ark of God coming from 20 years of hiding into its place with the whole nation rejoicing around it and being blessed by it. There was no concern about or interest in the presence of God in the midst of his people. She's just like her father, who had basically no interest in the ark or the things of God. And three times she's referred to as Michal, the daughter of Saul. Not the wife of David, though she was. She's called the daughter of Saul here to remind us of what he's like, because she's a lot like her old man. Saul cared too much for what the people thought of him. He cared too little for what God thought of him. And McCall is only concerned about what people think, not whether God is drawing near. She's concerned about what looks kingly and respectable, what looks like decorum and dignity. She doesn't like being embarrassed. And David was rather embarrassing. David, the servant girl saw you. 
And David replies, I wasn't dancing for them. Look at verse 21. He said, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, by the way, above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Those last words weren't haughty words. It wasn't self-promotion. He was undeniably God's man, the anointed one, the promised coming king at that time. And he was to be held in honor. We know that from what God foretold, and we know that from what happened after. But he wouldn't be held in honor because of a massive kingly robe. He wouldn't be held in honor because of the size or the glitz or glamour of his crown. He wouldn't be held in honor because of the dignity that he maintained whenever in public. David was a humble king. He was willing to be contemptible for the Lord. He stripped himself of all his kingly attire and put on skimpy a skimpy worship garment that he might praise God with all his might. David was a better king, not a king like the nations. That's what McCall wants him to be. He's one after God's own heart. And whatever he did, except for a few bad moments, what he did, he did before the Lord. He did it before the Lord. And nothing else mattered to him at this moment. He did it before the Lord. The question is, what kind of king do we have here? Isn't that a question that's relevant from the first time we're introduced to David back in 1 Samuel 16? And he's the youngest shepherd boy. And even Samuel, the prophet, thinks, not him. And the Lord says, yeah, him. I don't look on the outward appearance as man does. I look on the heart. What kind of king do we have here? We got a little one. We got a youngest, the youngest one. It's an important question to be asked and be asking when, when David is anointed but not yet king and he's on the run and he's hiding in caves. Some safely stay with Saul. Some are willing to risk life and limb to go with David to the cave because they recognize him as the king. It's the question here in 2 Samuel 6 as well. What kind of king do we have here? Are you good with a king who is reckless in his pursuit for the presence of God? Isn't this also the question that we have all through the gospel accounts about a different king, another king, a better king still? What kind of king do we have here? One who allowed himself to be stripped bare, humiliated, held in contempt. He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows. One who men turned away from and didn't look upon. One who looked like no king before or since. He looked like no king because he was obeying his father even unto his own death. He was like no king before because he was pursuing the presence of God for his people through radical shame and pain because that was the only way. Many people won't see Jesus the king in belief. They won't get what he's about. They won't like that kind of kingdom. With the eyes of McCall and Saul, they won't see Jesus as the true king. They'll stumble at the humility, think they don't need the servantry. They'll idolize respectability and not be desperate enough for God to see a bloodied savior upon a cross as the true king and as their only hope. What about you? Have you come to see Jesus as that king? Oh, this old, old story in 2 Samuel 6, it's an early version of the greatest story ever told. Is it relevant for us today? You better believe it, eternally so. 
David shows us as he points ahead to the presence of God coming in the mercy sacrifice of Jesus' blood and righteousness for us. That humbled David, that kind of mercy in the presence of God humbled David, but it hardened McCall. The presence of God, something she grew bitter under, and God judged her for it. Verse 23, McCall, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. That's clearly a word of divine judgment. What it's saying is that the Saul line is dying out. No more. The Saul kind is on its way out. The David kind will last forever and ever. That's what we'll see next week in 2 Samuel 7. But I close with this in Hebrews 12, with this reminder of what we have as Jesus has come to us and as we have come to him and his kingdom. The writer of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant through his blood. Let's pray for his help to believe that and live in light of it. Oh, Father, we thank you for all these grand gifts that are ours because of Christ, because he's our king, because he so graciously paid for our entrance into his kingdom and has welcomed us as sons and daughters and fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, we don't deserve simply your mercy. We don't deserve simply to go free, let alone to be to be called citizens of heaven, saints of the Most High, to worship alongside angels and saints of old, to see your promises unfold and your plan be revealed. We watch with great eagerness and expectancy, and we pray for more confidence, but we thank you for your nearness and for all the promises you've given us. We pray, Lord, and we pray this even now as we sing it, that you would abide with us. Abide, remain, continue, keep us close. For your namesake in glory, we pray. Amen.